quite common line of your personal social media, quote, opinions are always my own, will not stop. A reporter or troll connecting you to your organization. Being a target can have its advantages. It will keep you moving and ensures that you are self-aware and you don't make foolish missteps. Simply put, conduct yourself so you can be proud and justify your actions. That was an excerpt from the book, Command Presence, Increase Your Influence by Frank Ritchie. And Frank is with us today. Everybody, welcome back to the Tip of the Spear Leadership. I wanted to read that excerpt to set the tone for today's episode. Um, Frank, uh, you know, thank you for joining us and uh, give everybody a quick introduction of who you are for those that may not, uh, may not know you. Mike, it's an honor to be on your show. You do great work. I follow you on LinkedIn. I always see your posts. It always kind of sparks something in your mind to say, hey, I can do that a little bit better. And that's what this podcast is about. But that's also sure. what the book Command Presence is about. It's about being a good leader. But what are the behaviors and what are the tactics that you can just do a little bit better? Um, I started my career off as a live-in in Rockville, Maryland, which was a great experience. I worked at Bethesda Chevy Chase Rescue Squad. And I also did 22 years in the city of New Haven, retired as a battalion chief, union president, uh, the department's drill master, and led as lead plaintiff a landmark United States Supreme Court case based off merit. So basically, I, I wrote this book, Mike, so, and, and we talked about it a little bit off air, but I wrote this book so that people could learn just like, how often do you read a leadership book? And it's like, wow, these people go to college to write things without really saying anything. Um, I wrote the book so that regardless of your leadership style, that you could take away one or two tactics to make yourself just a little bit better. And you know, it was kind of humbling because I didn't write about the fires that went well. I didn't write about the times we did it right. I mean, I have 420 pages of mistakes. I was like, wow, I really sucked at this job. So <laughs> everybody can take something away from that is that we all just want to try to be a little bit better and don't get put into that trap of leadership is about this theory or about this theory. Being a good leader means that somebody wants to emulate you, and it's about the tactics and behavior and con projecting a consistent set of standards. Well, we're glad to have you. Um, we just scratched the surface of this book. It's something that I skimmed multiple times before today, and, and I'm definitely going to go back and read it, and, and I really, really uh, suggest everyone else does as well. It's, it's really good, uh, especially if you're a new company officer. I think this book is going to be um, – this is going to be a, a critical read. You have to read this because there's so much stuff. And like we talked about um, off air, there's so many things that thoughts and emotions that I had that I could never put into words that this book absolutely hits. And, um, you know, I've always thought like, Oh, this is what I'm feeling. This is what I'm thinking. This is what I'm seeing, but I don't even know myself how to put into words. And then your book pretty much adds the words right out of my mind. I'm like, Oh, that's how you say that. Okay, cool. Um, and it's really good. So, uh, we're going to get started. Uh, a few of the things that I wanted to talk about, we talked about a little bit off air. So one of the things that you mentioned in the book was um, if you don't have the right answer, ask the right questions. Get into that a little bit. Okay. So uh, it's kind of funny if, if I'm teaching at FDIC or teach somewhere across the country leadership, you ask people, you know, do you ever ask a question you don't know the answer to? And you'll have people say, I never ask the question unless I know the answer. 
That's the BS. You're a fool, okay? <laughs> because, see, that advice comes from the legal world. And that's an advice for lawyers. But the reason that advice is there for lawyers is because they had the ability to already ask the question in a deposition. So that advice means that when you go to a trial, you don't ask a question you didn't already ask in depositions. So for a leader, you're not always going to have the right answer. But as long as you ask the right question, you're going to be able to get the information you need. You're also going to be able to build your crew and you're going to put yourself in a position of success because it's that information that makes all the difference. You focus a lot on company officers. So I'll give you an example. Every company officer should allow that quick exchange back and forth. When I was driving truck four in New Haven and we'd pull up and, you know, New Haven's trees, wires, I mean, cars parked on both sides of the street. And the boss would say, we're going ground ladders. I would look at the boss and say, Cap, I got this. And 99% of the time, he would say, okay. But there were two times in, that I can think of off the top of my head where he said, no, we're going ground ladders. Well, that's the end of the conversation. You know, sure. then, then we're going ground ladders. Even though I could get it, um, he's or she is the boss that's giving you that direction. But don't ever think that you're so good that you don't want that quick exchange with your personnel and just set the expectation of, hey, if you have a piece of information I don't have, like, hey, we're stretching to the third floor and your and your pipe person that's got six months on the job says, hey, do you see the smoke coming out of the basement window? You know, that's an exchange you want to encourage. But if you tell the person, hey, we're stretching to the third floor, there can be no other conversation. It ends right there. Yeah, and that's something that Tim Klett talked about on here too is your non-negotiables and the fact that, you know, you can make and you can give informed information. Um, actually, that doesn't make sense. I don't know why I said that, but you can give information that can be applicable to the situation. But ultimately, at the end of the day, it's a it is a democracy, not a dictatorship. And as an officer, they don't want you to say, well, what do I do? Or when some multiple people tell you do this, do that, do the or the other. And you just listen to everyone. That's indecision, right? Indecision is a decision and there's nothing but failure that follows that. You have to make a decision. And I like the way that you said uh, as a truck driver, your captain told you a couple of times, twice that you can remember, uh, no, you will do X, Y, and Z, or, you know, you will go ground ladders. Um, you want that as an, as, as a, one of the guys you want, you want to be that as the leader, because the way you said it, it's not, he's disagreeing with you every time you're going to lose your, you're going to lose your uh, value in that, right? If he were to tell you no every time, you're going to stop listening to him at some point, especially if he's wrong every time. But it's one of those things of, you know, kind of like the guy doesn't say a whole lot, but when he does talk, everyone listens. So if your captain's going to stick to his guns and say, no, you're doing this. All right, well, there's got to be something he sees that I don't. I trust him. We've worked together. We've built the rapport. He's proven himself time and time again, and he's making a decision right now. I'm going to listen to him. And, you know, you also have the flip side of that of there's been times where he's made those decisions. He's been wrong. He's been humble and he admits it. So either way, it's going to be a win-win for us. And I trust him and respect him. I'm going to listen to him. Yeah, That's yeah. a little long winded, but all those thoughts go through your head subconsciously in matter of milliseconds. You, and you know that also I mean? goes to projecting a consistent set of standards and values sure. in training, because if you're do doing quality training with your shift 
it's going to mean that you speak even less when you pull up to a fire or emergency. If you pull up to a fire or emergency and you're looking at your crew saying, I need you to pull up, say, a two and a half on a commercial structure, you're already losing because you're not looking at the building. The time to communicate that, hey, if it's a commercial structure, we're pulling a two and a half is during training. I shouldn't, as the company officer or as, as the boss, have to be giving those type of directions. Sure. Yeah. And that, yeah, that's, you know, the old saying of, you know, people are going to rise to your expectations or fall to theirs. So if you consistently hit the gas, I mean, and I think I've talked about this before. Uh, I know I've talked about it at work is, you know, leadership in general is kind of like driving a manual, right? You got to know when to hit the clutch and when to hit the gas. And that's where you hit the gas on the training, right? You hit the clutch on situation circumstantially where you may have to take input you may, there may be a day, and I know I've been here, where you have people that are have experienced, guys that you have mutual respect and trust with. You pull up, you're, you don't know what to do. You're like, man, I don't even know where to start on this one. Hey, Rick, I'm thinking third floor. All right, cool. Let's go. Or, you know, hey, LT, uh, you know, whatever. You can bounce stuff off of people. Keep those situations to a very, very absolute minimum. Um, and always make your informed decision on the basics as, you know, when you were a firefighter, what you would do. And like when I, when I worked in, in New Haven and my take on company training is different than a lot of individuals. Um, I just, I have a podcast for fire engineering and just had a guy on from New York city. And he's like, you know, you gotta be professional. You gotta train, 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 train. You know, I took a different approach when I got promoted Lieutenant, I got stationed at a place called the Island of Misfit Toys. And I mean, their, their, their logo deal. is the Charlie in the box. It's one of the best fire department logos, but they were known for crushing banter. It was a real experience shift. And the two junior people on the shift, I actually trained as an academy instructor. So when I got there, you know, with my fire engineering background, they thought, oh, this is going to be a nightmare. And my take on training was totally different. My take on was, hey, from 10 to 12, you're mine every day that we're at work. That doesn't mean we're going to go a full two hours, but from 10 to 12, we're going to do something. And whether it was to go look at a building because of, you know, the weather or whatever, but we're going to probably do one quality evolution on air, you know, throw miners, whatever, whatever it was. And I'm going to participate in it or go first in the endeavor. Yeah. And then after the evolution is over, we're going to critique it. And we're all going to talk about what we could do better. I didn't believe in that. Hey, I need to have this, these individuals do this 10 times because I knew the likelihood is we were going to get an alarm and a fire or an emergency was just a call away. So I wanted quality training. And what I found is that as long as you're consistent, everybody's skills, even if they didn't participate in that one evolution and they watched it, but the next day they're going to participate. Everybody gets better. And then I was having old salts because at the time I was vice president of the union as well where I get stuck on a, a phone call and I had one of the senior members of the shift who had 30 years on the job, knock on my door and go, Hey Lou, are we going to go out and do an evolution? It got to the point where these guys were actually requesting to go do it. If something else happened. So, sure. so, you know, there's two theories, you know, you do the muscle memory, you kill them, you kill them, you kill them. Yeah. That has a place, but not all the time. Sometimes you just want to do one quality evolution, critique it, break it down and then move on from there. Yeah. And, you know, the other thing, too, is I don't I personally don't think necessarily think every time you do a drill it needs the on air stuff. I, I Yes, it has its time and place and it needs to be somewhat consistent. And 
I think that's going to be tailored to your your crew and their levels because the way you would work and train with a crew that collectively has a total of like 10 years, like between all of them is much different when, you know, there may be a crew out there I know about that has uh, the youngest guy has 10 years on. Absolutely. Right? It's, it's, it's a matter of circumstance and that's where you as the officer need to know, um, know who your people are. And it goes from, cause there's a, I think I have to say this a little bit better. You're not, depending on where the experience level is, it's like making a sword, right? Are you heating it up, right? Motivating them, making them want to play, making them want to go, go to work, making them want to do these things. Are you beating them down? Like as far as continuous training, consistent training, like if you strike a, um, strike while the iron's hot, uh, while making a sword, you're beating it into, into its form. You're forming it, I guess, not beating it. You're forming it, right? Are you in that forming phase? Or are you at that end or that final stage where you're just sharpening the edge as needed? It's a um, reliable weapon. It's consistent. It's a consistent weapon. It's visually a sharp weapon. And every once in a while, you just sharpen that edge as it's used. And you sharpen your edge after every use, which is the hot wash after the calls, which is the tailboard talks, which are those weird calls every once in a while where you kind of just shit the bed a little bit and you guys kind of come together. Hey, we screwed this up, you know, whatever let's talk, let's work on this. Or, Hey, we pulled this, we ran this high rise box. It didn't really go that great. This other company did X, Y, and Z. I don't want to make that mistake. Let's talk about it. You're sharpening that edge. Right. Um, you know, and, and I think that's something to be said about that training as well. And that's something that company officers, I think, um, I think they do really, really good. And I think there's some that really don't do that great, but I think collectively, um, that's where you're going to get the most feedback from your people and your production is when you're able to figure that out because the quality has to be there. And it's all a matter of who is there that you're teaching to as well. What do you think about that? No, I think you're, you're absolutely right. And, you know, as the officer, you're the one that's sets the standard. And, you know, as, as you opened up with sometimes setting the standard makes you the target. You know, a lot of people talk about character is what, what you do when nobody's looking. Well, leadership occurs what you do when everybody's looking because that's where true leadership occurs and that's also where the true damage occurs so you can't be afraid you can't equate being a leader with being popular it doesn't it doesn't work the two don't go hand in hand if you're an effective leader eventually you'll gain respect and that will lead to a degree of popularity but if you look back on all our great leaders whether it's George Washington, Martin Luther King, Gandhi, they all had their detractors. You know, we almost romanticize being the boss because we think of, hey, this battalion chief was the greatest person in the world because everybody said this at their retirement party. Well, that's not what they said at the kitchen table when they were there. So you, you got to realize that you're always going to be a target. And what I say about being a target is that being a target is a benefit because it will keep you vigilant and you can decide where to draw the fire and don't be afraid to make a decision. Now, one of the stories I tell in the book, which, which I think is, is kind of interesting is, and it's very rare that you talk to an author who recommend another book, but the other really good book on leadership is Michael Aberkoff's book. It's your ship. And one of the things he says is that I've, I quoted him in the book is that, Hey, if what you did, if your action ended up on the front page of the Washington Post above the fold, if you could justify those actions, then you know you know you're good. Um, I worked in a socioeconomically deprived black section of the city for like 13 years, and then when I was promoted, I moved to a socioeconomically deprived uh, 
Ecuadorian community that was surrounded by water. So I didn't have all the answers. And we got a call for a, a kayaker flipped over in the river. And so I made the I made the call that I was going to steal a boat. I was going to commandeer a boat from a yacht club, start it up and get to the kayak before the Coast Guard got there. And I knew I my, my cousin worked on my ship, 40 ships in the city. And my first cousin worked for me. So that was a challenge in itself. But I told them as we were pulling out of the marina in the stolen boat, that if the Coast Guard gets to the kayak before we do, you're going to be getting a new officer. And sure. but I figured I could justify it. And I was able to justify it. And then I made sure that the department uh, acknowledged the individual, even though they didn't have a choice, of the boat we stole. And we filled it up with gas after. And he, uh, the owner was very appreciative. But sometimes you got to make those unpopular decisions. And as a company officer, I thought about, do I pick up the radio and ask the battalion chief if I can commandeer this boat? <laughs> then I thought, eh, when in command, command. Because if I did that, I was going to put the battalion chief in a bad spot. I knew that circumstances dictated action. We had a credible report of somebody in the river far enough out that you weren't going to get them with a throw bag, that we needed to get to the kayak quick, and uh, we effectively did. Yeah, I'm, I'm not really sure of maritime law, but I'm probably pretty sure there's something about that in there as well. I'm kidding. But, um, yeah, <laughs> Grand Theft Boat. Um, hey, Mike, I came back to work the next day and my crew had a pirate flag hanging off the engine. So God, I knew I was, I knew I was making, some <laughs> I said, okay, we're doing good now. Yeah. And you know, and it's funny that situation, while it may be small in nature and funny, the ripple effects that created are gigantic because now they watched you get out of your comfort zone. They watched you do something that's going to be incredibly unpopular, but you said, you didn't even think twice. You didn't blink an eye. You made your decision. You moved forward and you knew it was going to be risky, but you did it. You performed, you showed up and you knocked it out of the park. It sounds like saved somebody's life. And they knew that you're not afraid to step out of the norm to get the job done. Mike, that's um, what made it worse. We didn't save anybody's life. The kayak was blown oh. the wind and it was just an erroneous report that the person was screaming for help. So that's what made it even worse. I was like, oh, I'll better. be in the chief's office on, on, All right. on this one. <laughs> <laughs> All right, guys, nice to see you. I'm going to go get suspended now. But um, you brought up the book, uh, It's Your Ship. I haven't read that book in a while, but if I remember correctly, and please correct me if, if I'm wrong, there comes there's a part in that ship where after – he goes because I remember they boasted they used to boast a lot in that book they're the best ship in the navy and he repeated that throughout the book multiple times and one of the things that always sticks out in my mind was they went back and repainted all the everything in the boat they repainted like all the way down to the bolts and everything and then that's a symptom of pride right they spent all the money to have what I forget exactly how they said it but the long story short was they spent the money to get the boats or to get new bolts get off the rust clean it up send it and then they would uh, put it back together and then they would continuously boast when they did radio transmissions that they're the best ship in the Navy. And then these guys took it upon themselves to do this bolt repainting. And I mean, as a leader that, that talks about exactly what you talked about, the guys knocking on your door of, Hey, let's go drill. Let's go drill. It's, it's, it's a symptom of leadership. Well, the other thing that, that, that of, you know, leading by example, but that I want to bring up is there's, I, oh, I, it's all I hear about lately. I see people on their LinkedIn profile. I'm a servant leader. You know, it's like the new buzzword. Everybody wants to be a servant leader. 
there's a trap in adopting any leadership, one leadership style. And that's why my book focused on tactics and behavior to make yourself just a little bit better. Um, here's a perfect example. Regardless of, of politics, if you look at President Carter and you ask most people about his presidency, they would probably say, whether they're Democrat or Republican, he had the second worst presidency in American history. But yet, if you asked about President Carter as a former president, you would see that most people would say he was the most effective former president. Here was an individual that basically only used servant leadership. I mean, he carried his bags into the White House and everybody knew him as a peanut farmer. He never relied on the credibility that he was in the Navy, in the silent service, and was selected for nuclear submarine duty as an executive officer. So that's what goes back to what you were saying about saying that, hey, we're the best damn ship in the Navy, is that you always got to advocate for your people and build that pride. But having that one set of leadership theory and using one made him successful after the presidency. But it didn't make him successful during the presidency. So don't fall in a trap of just using one type of leadership style. Use, you know, go back and forth between a couple different ones. And to make it tangible, I'm going to give you an example. You walk sure. into the firehouse as the new boss. This could be anywhere. The fire truck's dirty. We'll take the simplest thing going. So you got a choice. You can go up to the driver and tell him to do it or her to do it. You can get on the PA and say all hands down to do it. Or the third you can get up and start washing the truck. Now, here's the trap. You get up and start washing the truck. Everybody's going to get up and start doing the activity, whether it's washing the truck, cutting the lawn, whatever. If you're the boss and they respect you and they see you up washing the truck, they're going to jump up. The trap is if you stay too long, you actually diminish your command. You want to wash the truck, talk to them, build that camaraderie, but then you want to walk away and let them finish the truck Go to your office, go do something else. You're not just the highest paid firefighter as a company officer. You're there to supervise. So, yes, you want to get your hands dirty. You want to lead by example, but you also don't want to diminish your own command. And I think that that's an important distinction, especially as everybody says that, hey, I want to be the servant leader. Um, Dave Polycoffa, Montgomery County and Frederick County guy, you know, he gets up and washes his own dish. I say, yeah, that's great. I said, but if somebody offers to wash your dish, you give it to them and you say, thank you. But if you want to be the officer where people wash your dish, then you have to be the firefighter who never lets an officer wash the dish. You always got to be willing to do that extra 10 or 15 minutes. So don't diminish your command. If you're a boss and you're invited to dinner, throw $20 on the table, even when they say the dinner's on them. If you're, if you're a boss, I'm not talking about the lieutenant, pay your fair share as lieutenant. I'm talking about like the battalion chief or the deputy that's invited to dinner. You never want to be viewed as cheap. You can't afford to be viewed as cheap. Right. So make sure you pay for your dinner or throw $20 on or bring ice cream and a pie. And then when you get up, get up to wash your own dish and let somebody take it from you. If they grab it, say thank you and be gracious. Yeah. And, you know, the other th <clears throat> I've had that a few times. Uh, I know exactly what you're talking about. And it's kind of interesting how it's all it all breaks down into uh, influence. And I wrote a couple notes while you were talking too. Um, and the one thing I think it's missed sometimes is how important your influence can be. And that's what all that is. It's, it's your influence. Um, so 
I think leaders hold significant influence over their, uh, over their crews, over their uh, shift, their firefighters. Um, your actions, decisions, and communication set a style and tone and the direction for the group. So when you're doing those things, you're starting to wash that truck. I don't know if anybody's had it where you go to wash the truck. They all watch out, walk out, see you do it, and then they just walk away. I guess that's always an option, or that could always happen. But I haven't seen that. But you know, you suck as a boss. If if that's that would be terrible. Do some self reflection to say there's something bigger going on if they're not jumping up and washing. Yeah, there's there's a gauge to that, and um, you know, (laughs) so it all it all comes through your actions, your decisions, like we talked about earlier. Um, your communication style, the way you talk to people and how you treat them and the tone and your direction for the group. Um, I think if you're a skilled leader, you're going to inspire, motivate others. You're going to foster a sense of purpose and uh, dedication among te- amongst team members. So you could have kind of like I think is somewhat normal now where staffing shortages and post COVID and all that stuff, people are really beat up and beat down, especially with, you know, the staffing shortages and all the, all the, um, all the uh, whole, whole, you know, mandatories and all that. You, you, hear, you hear that all through the DC region. There's a lot of that going on where, you know, big picture wise, they're pissed off at the department. They're not happy. Morale's in the trash. Small picture wise in this firehouse, in the shift, they love coming to work. They love coming to work for their guy, for the people, the guys around them. They want to come to work for each other. Mike, one not- thing I talk about that I, that I learned from Chris Sunwall, a battalion chief in small town Wallingford, Connecticut is he said that each year he brings his personnel into the office one by one and he asks them, you know, hey, what would you like to see done different on the shift? He asks them about their family. He updates their emergency contact number. You'd be surprised even in city departments where you have a line of duty death, somebody significantly injured, and you're looking for the person's phone number for their wife or husband or spouse or, you know, how many kids they have. So he would kind of build a a file each year. And I said, Well, Chris, I have too big of an ego for that. If I call my personnel in and just say, hey, what do you want to bitch about? I mean, this thing will go on forever. So I took yeah. what, I took that <laughs> lesson and I, I I molded it. And I said, all right, I'm going to call everybody in the office, update their contact information one at a time each year. And I'm going to ask them, I want three things you really like about working for me on this shift and two things that you'd want to change. And most people that I called into my office would not play my reindeer games. They're like, oh, everything's great. You know, and I was I was to the point of this is a failed experiment. And then somebody came in the office, sat down and he goes, well, why is it three, two? And I go, well, I'm going to call it the three, two, because I got to feel good about myself when I leave here. So if you're telling me three good things and two bad things, I'll 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 be all right. And he told me something of a blind spot that I had that the senior personnel didn't tell me, which they knew they could always come to goodbye to me. He said, any, we're getting killed. We're running 12 medicals after midnight. We might get a fire or whatever emergency. He goes, and when we have overtime come in on the shift, you put overtime on the back of the truck and here we're getting killed night after night. And I'm like, is this like really an issue? Cause I put you guys on the engine with me because of company pride. You know, we're here, we're a shift. I want you on the pipe. You know, we want to get it first. Aggressive company. And he's like, yeah, but we're getting killed and we're kind of watering down the truck. And I was like, okay. So I took that to heart. And then I started putting the overtime individual on the hydrant, on on the engine when I was working. So, And sometimes 
officers do it not for company pride. Sometimes officers do it because they don't want to work with the person that they get on overtime. So that's the reality. So don't fall for that trap. Don't always think you can push off a problem. You know, if you're the boss, punish yourself. You don't want to work with the person, put them on the hydrant, work with the person and hold them accountable. Sure. Yeah. And, you know, the other thing, too, is they're going to see it. And I don't want to say you need to build things up to like use against them. But if you have situations like that where, you know, it's going to be uncomfortable, you take it head on. You don't really have to go out of your way to say you're doing it. You know, you could say something to the effect of, you know, Bill's working here tonight. Everybody hates Bill. He's going to create problems. And you say something to the effect of, yep, but he's working here tonight, so there's nothing we can do. And then you just walk away or you change the subject or you just kind of end the conversation there and start doing that consistently over, I don't know, a year. That's going to be one of those things you're going to build into that leadership capital of. You're not going to allow yourself to allow others to dictate how you work. Yeah, they come in, they suck down here. I don't care. We all work together. We're all in the same shift. We're all going to do it our way. And if he doesn't like it, I'll handle it because I'm the officer and I'll bring him up to speed. And if he doesn't work out right, he doesn't do the right thing. I'm going to hold him accountable to the depart- how our department holds people accountable for not performing properly. That's just the way it is. And if they don't like it, I don't care. I'm and, and Mike, to, to that point, that's very important. We see a lot of times in departments where, especially if you're leading in a broken system where the department doesn't support the officer, like the officer writes somebody up and the department ignores it because of politics or policy or procedure that's just so outdated whatever's going on remember you know your boss you're you're a manager you're not again you're not the highest paid firefighter you're you're a manager and yet there's only things that you can control so if you have an employee issue don't be afraid to write the person up be a man or a woman and give the person a copy of the letter that you wrote them up with because they're going to get a copy of it from the union anyway or from the volunteer chief whatever it is they're going to see what you wrote So give them a copy of the letter that you wrote up and realize that what happens beyond your control may be beyond your control in that circumstances. But if your personnel knows that you will hold the crew accountable and that you will write somebody up and you're consistent and fair, it's going to actually increase your influence even when management doesn't do the job. So don't ever fall in a trap of saying, oh, management ain't going to do anything, so I'm not going to do my job. That's a horrible way. It diminishes your own command. Write the letter. Give them a copy of it. Make sure it's fair. You know, discipline should always be fair, firm, and friendly. It's sure. Fair. And and you can't pass the buck of the crappy employee or pass the buck of, oh, well, they're only here for 12 hours. Because here's the thing, right? Little Billy shows up, and he's just a turd, and he sucks, and he whatever. He doesn't wear his gear right, or I don't, I don't know. You can pick whatever circumstance you want. You plug in any circumstance that's not acceptable on your crew because your crew is basically um, your crew, you know, yeah, is a machine. Well, we work really hard and we do all these things and we're held accountable. And we're held to this this standard, but you let them do whatever they want because they're only here for twelve hours. Why aren't we doing that? Or I let you slip on something, but then I hold that guy accountable. If you're consistent and firm, you'll get more buy-in. You'll have more, um, I'm not going to say followers, but you're going to have more people willing to do what you expect and up to your standards. They're going to want to be at those standards because they know everybody's going to do the same thing across the board. And you do that by leading by example. So the example, leading by example for this one is I'm a consistent officer. And um, with doing that, you're going to create a, and this is some of the notes that I had earlier because you actually walked right into what I wanted to say was, 
Uh, you'll create a positive work culture, encouraging collaboration and open communication because they know everybody's going to be on the same page. Um, and when people are complaining about things or people don't like the way things are going or whatever it is, um, you're going to listen to them. You're going to value their different perspectives. Uh, you're going to empower the individuals. You're going to contribute their who will want to contribute their best efforts. So the best way to turn around and just trash that is by allowing an underperformer to come in, get a break, pawn them off. And then your entire crew sees that and they're like, well, if pawning you off, like in your example, if pawning me off puts me on the ladder truck and I get to sleep all night, why don't you pawn me off? Cause I wouldn't mind sleeping. I don't want to run 12 after midnight on the engine, you know, uh, firefighters never sleep. Okay. Right. See, this is the union president in me. You, yeah. that, that has to be, that has to be taken right out. When I was on truck four, if we were, had a, a night where we happened to not run any calls and I came home and my wife said, honey, how was last night? I would take a nap out of principle. I would say you wouldn't believe the night we had. So firefighters got to yeah. sleep. They sleep all the time. That's right. like firefighters saying, here, Mike, this is important. This is like the busy company. Okay. I worked in a busy company. The busy company says, oh, last night we only had food on the stove call. What do you think? The person would rather have fire blowing out two bedrooms where you're right. making that push down right. the hop hall, hall or is the citizen going to say, ah, oh, well, the fire department say, no, look, you, you save that person's belongings, that, that great stop, that should be referred to as a great stop, not as a, just another food on the stove call. Yeah. But it's, you know, it's also, that's, I think things like that are kind of like, um, trying to think how to say this. Those things are like when people have parade racked fire engines. I personally, the OCD in me loves parade rack fire engines. I think they look absolutely fantastic. They're beautiful. Um, buttery tires, shiny fire trucks, you know, all that stuff. That is freaking cool. But that should not be the only sense of pride that you have, right? No, all those things not. should be symptoms. So while you said it, you know, that's a very, very good way that you're saying it. I love it when guys are like, oh, man, it's only food on the stove. Oh, damn it. It's only this. Oh, darn it. It's only that. It's because they want to be there. They love to be there. They want to go to fires. They want to do those things. But and the problem is, is the boss, if you allow that, that you kind of allow that man, that mindset for the reason, the problem is it, it always spills over into the public when they're at a restaurant, sure. when they're telling their sure. friends, I only went to food on the stove. If just changing the terminology will help the fire service go forward, just like officers, if you're not on your report saying property saved versus property lost, you're doing a disservice when it comes to supporting your department and supporting the mission so that you have the proper resources when you need to make that strong push and put out the fire and do what we all love doing, going in there and getting it. Yeah. And, you know, it's it all also comes down to aggression, right? You know, an overly aggressive crew. I would rather have to like, you know, hey, dude, back up or hey, come here, like slow down, chill. I'd rather have to pull the reins back than have to really shove someone to do their job. You Absolutely. know what I mean? 100%. And, and, and it's, I don't want to say it's frustrating in the moment, but like one thing that I've learned with very, very aggressive people is in the heat of the moment, they're not typically themselves. They're a little bit different because they're, um, at least in my experience of the crew that I work with, they're ready to go. They're hundred miles an hour. They know what they're doing. They're sharp and they, they want to work. They look for work. They want to be in the middle of all the work and you're like, Hey man, like back up. And then you always, 
somehow, some way, they're like, well, wait a minute. We're supposed to boom. Get back here. Slow down. Get that line out of there. Stop. And you always get the, okay. Because they snap back. I don't want to say snap back to reality, but, you know, they kind of realize where they're going and they're like, oh, okay, yeah, I need to slow down. Whereas the flip side of that, and that's why I brought that up, is the lazy people, the people that don't want to be there, they're going to have a mask problem or they're going to, oh, no, I took the wrong turn. Or- I, have seen, I have seen the courage of men and women fail, but I've never seen an air pack fail that was properly checked out on a call. So if somebody I- has a mask problem, it's not the that's a symptom of a larger problem most correct often, and it needs to be addressed not ignored by the officer and that's what we do we ask those guys and girls that are so aggressive to do more and the people that do nothing we ignore no write up that person first yeah. inspect the scba because they could have had an issue inspect it document it go back on the other documentation then write it up send them for remedial training if it turns out that it wasn't a scott issue and make sure, sure. that it's documented I've only had one mask issue ever. I've been working in my department for 16 years. I started volunteering in 2001. I have only had one mask issue. What, 2001? What is that? 20, almost 22 years. I've never once. And it was while I was at work. It was a first due box. It was, I don't even really think it was much. I think it might have been like a, a room in a basement or something. And we were we're in an area where everybody's on top of each other, but this little part of the neighborhood is over top of a highway and a fairly secluded because it's just tough to get to. So it gives you, instead of everybody showing up in three minutes, you get three and a half minutes or maybe four minutes, whatever. Very, very rapid, very, very close compared to, you know, nationally. Everybody's, we're, everybody's on top of each other in that area. So I put all my stuff on and I go and I pull my mask tight. And when I pulled it tight, the rivet pops out of the rubber. So then for a split second, I said, well, I can just yank everything else tight and just hold my mask to my face because I refuse to say I have a mask issue. Like I wouldn't freaking do it. So the driver was flaking up and I turned around and I said, give me your effing mask. Mine's mine's F. Mine's effed up. And he runs over, grabs it, hands it to me. And I throw mine. I was like, do not lose this. Put it in the driver's seat. Put it on. I was afraid of my officer. I was afraid. And he's, he comes up and it wasn't, and all of this is a span of seconds, like a 30 second, Hey, my mask is jacked, throw it in the driver's seat. And he kind of chuckled as he was running away. Cause I think he knew what I was, what I was getting at. Cause our officer was kind of crazy. Great guy. He's a psycho. And, um, so I put it on, you know, get down there. Like, and I don't want to admit this, but I'm going to say it anyway. Like I pulled my ear flaps down. I didn't even waste time putting my Nomex up. Cause I was just so afraid of being delayed, which I, re- I regret ever doing that, but it is what it is. I didn't get hurt. The fire was pretty much out. It was just smoldering anyway, but complacency, right? Shouldn't do it. And uh, officer's like, hey, man, uh, you, were, you were pretty slow. What, uh, what happened? And I said, I had a mask problem. It's in the driver's, and that's all I got out. And he's like, are you effing kidding me? And driver's like, mm, here it is. And he looks at it, looks at me, looks at it, shoves it in my chest. And he's like, you get one. Don't ever have a problem ever again. And I'm like, all right, LT, you got it. And uh, yeah, I mean, he hammered me. He oh, but the, cra- but the crazy officer had something very important about leadership is they didn't just start, you know, going off and attacking you. They automatically asked you, hey, what happened? Or sure. like I like to say, what was your thought process? Get information before you go off on what the preconceived notion is. So sure. the officer definitely had that had that part down, which is good. 
and I was terrified to say the words, I had a mask problem. I mean, this is, God, probably 12 years ago. Maybe maybe 10 years, 11 years. I don't know. Either way, it was much, much, much different time in the department. The way people carried themselves, the way officers talked to each other, or the way the officer w- was allowed to talk to you. Because you know how generationally older guy, like I was absolutely terrified of this dude. And he beat the crap out of us and when it came to drills and hand lines and getting geared up, getting masked up because of how close and how on top of each other we all are in that in that battalion. And, and just um, just on the masking up issue as a boss, because, you know, you want to focus on the company officer aspect of it. You know, so I see this in a lot of volunteer departments where they get off the piece and their face mask is on, which is like you can't see. I don't anything. like that. Um, yeah. Well, I get it, but I don't like it. One thing that I always taught the officers in, uh, and firefighters in recruit school is put your mask on to the side of the front door while you're on your knees. So what that does is the pipe person has the pipe between the nozzle behind between their knees. It gives you the ability to take that one last look at the building to what I call mental measurements. So if you're looking at a house, you, you know, you're taking in your size up, giving whatever direction you get right up to the door, you get on your knees, you know, right before you put your mask on, take one extra look and think to yourself, okay, I'm going to go through this door. I got the kitchen. The kitchen leads to a hallway in this type of house. The first door I'm going to come to is the linen closet that's going to open towards me. Then I got a bathroom, a bedroom, a bedroom, a bedroom. So you kind of do mental measurements of how far it's going to take to go. Same thing, two and a half wood going up the stairs. How far do I have to go to get to that front room? I've seen I've come up on officers where they're like, this is as far as we can go. You're 10 feet off the stairs. Yeah. <laughs> It's a 40 foot long house. So sure. taking taking the extra yeah. second for one last quick size up and doing that mental measurement before you put on your mask and make sure you pull your straps in line, not to the yeah, side. Not, not to the side, yeah. Not to the side. <laughs> but uh valuable lesson. But uh that's that's one of the things that's gonna gonna also take those aggressive individuals and realize that wait, if I take an extra second, I could actually save minutes. And it's going to facilitate an even faster stretch or a faster search by taking an extra second and going. But I agree with you. You want to be able to hold them back, not push them in. Yeah. And, you know, and that you can imagine what I did multiple times every shift for the for quite some time. And that was putting my gear on or putting my mask on and masking up on everything. Fire alarm. Hey, Mike, uh, let's pull on put your stuff on. Uh, you know, you're going to put your mask on. All right, LT, you got it. Everywhere we went. If there was anything that even remotely was would justify a hand line, it didn't matter what it was. But so if we're pulling a line on anything, I I put my gear on. Or I'm gonna have my gear on because we're pulling a line for the call and standing by. But once it was, you know, once they figured out what it, whatever it was, the call was dictate or the call was, you know, over with. It was all right, cool, flake the line out. Here it is, mask up every single time for a long time. I did that, um, and it and it was good. It was worth it, um, you know. And, and and I learned a lot from it and. Um, so the funny part is too, you were mentioning about taking that extra few seconds. Like I don't like getting off. Well, I can't get off with my mask on because I'm the officer. I need to see the big picture. Um, we had a fire recently a few months ago where it got dispatched for a non-emergency call for a call for service, unknown problem. And the woman's like, I need a fire truck. That's all she said. That was it. Hey, I need a fire truck. I didn't listen to the call. I didn't listen to the 911 call. Um, but I need a fire truck. And that was kind of what she said. So we're going down, we're putting down the road, whatever, whatever. And I guess the call taker was talking to her. And then 
on our CAD, it's black and green. So anything that is in the initial CAD or updates will come in in green on a black screen. And then anything with priority where they need your, uh, to grab your attention, it comes in in orange and it's in parentheses. And it says, caller called back, says she can see fire in her window. Caller called back and said, smoke everywhere in the house. And we're like, and we're pulling off the ramp of the firehouse. And I'm like, get your shit on. Uh, the house is on fire. And they're like, what? I'm like, get your shit on. The house is on fire. Here's the note, the note saying this, that, or the other. So we go down the road and we get there. And one of the, I think the duty chief was there before us, before he got on the radio. And you could just see this coffee colored smoke. And if you know what coffee colored smoke is, it's the bones of the house. It's the wood. It's the structures on fire, not the, not the contents of the room, not petroleum products, which would be black smoke or, you know, any other color smoke you would have, but, um, the bones. So looking at it, deep seated, hot, it's in the walls. It's, it's, it's ahead of us, right? It's, it's, it's a well-advanced fire and, um, it's a split level house. I don't know if you're familiar with the split level, but split level in Maryland, I, I would assume they're the same way across the nation. I don't know if they're outside of the DC region, but split level, you walk up a few steps, you walk in and it's, um, going to be like a den. And then a few feet into your left or your right, depending on which side the house is oriented, this house was oriented to the left. There's going to be a few steps down. And that was going to be like a common area, like a living room kind of thing or a den area. Actually, when you walk into the door to the right for this house would have been like a, the den, the actual den. And then next to the stairs that go down, there's a step set of steps that go up. And that's where the bedrooms, the living space is in there and straight back was the kitchen. So we knew that. And I said, all right, cool. I said, hey, take a look. Open the door real quick. Firefighter opened the door, and it was like jet black smoke, and you could feel the heat immediately, and he slammed it shut. And I was like, hey, it's going to be a few feet in on the left-hand side. Make sure it's the steps down, not the steps up. The fire's going to be down. And so we went in. We put the fire out. It went well. The fire was – I mean, the fire was everywhere in this in this house, and really good fire for us. Very good first deep fire. But the same thing, it was – quick 30 second blips of communication and information between me, the guy riding uh, backup and the guy riding the line backup guy had 14 years line guys got right around 10. And this is all experience based, aggre very aggressive firefighters communicating in a matter of seconds in high stress environments where that whole stress inoculation, um, uh, auditory exclusion, all those things typically can, overtake you, right? Those things are real. You know, you know what auditory exclusion is and, and, and uh, stress inoculation is. And, um, but they were able, we were able to quickly, quite, uh, quickly and clearly communicate. Uh, and this is all over a matter of maybe 30 seconds. I think the guy, I think the guy slamming the door shut, that took more time than our quick little communication, our quick little conversation at the front of the house. And it went out, fire went out. It took us a little bit to find it. Good fire got it knocked out. But the whole time we're doing this, we're communicating, right? Very aggressive and, and, and strong communication. And it was all from that few seconds of stopping, getting on the same page. Now that we're on the same page, we're executing, putting the fire out together. We're still able to communicate and it all anchored back, like you said, to those few seconds on the front porch. So those are critical. That's why it's critical for your mask. As you said, to take those few seconds, get one last picture, one last little game plan, you, you know, you might need to call an audible because you may notice that somehow, some way it's in the basement now. Um, you know, so I just wanted to add that little quick uh, recent experience of um, exactly what you talked about. So, um, so 
I think this is a good point to kind of shift the discussion. Um, I think that would lead us into another really good part of one of your tactics in your book. And it says, uh, as a supervisor, if you're working with your hands, you're not working with your mind. Always be cognizant of if you are operating at the task, tactical or strategic level. If you have to move down a level due to circumstances beyond your control, make sure to move back as quickly as possible. Okay, so to, to break it down into something that's like more manageable, say you're a company officer on a hose line and the line is is hung up. You know, you got a couple of different choices. You could get on the radio and call command, give command your problem. Remember, information goes up, orders go down. So give command your problem. I need an additional company to get my line in place is a great radio transmission. If you're on the truck and you decide you have to use the 40 or 50 foot ladder, um, don't just try to do it with four people. Get on the radio, give the battalion chief your problem. Uh, truck forward to command, I'm gonna need additional company to get my 40 foot or 50 foot ladder in place. Now you gave the issue to, you gave information to command, they're gonna give you a company. If you don't ask for it, you're not gonna get a company. So sure. in the officer, uh, engine officer scenario, you may drop back a couple feet to pull hose around a corner, but then you got to get back up with your firefighter. We had it in New Haven where one officer was a good officer. They ended up dropping back, grabbed it, hose got hooked up, you know, kind of got tactically uh, saturated in the task and sure. just was moving the hose for the firefighter. And here are the firefighters by themselves. The rescue found the firefighter operating alone with officer. No, the officer was like 30 feet back um, in the structure operating at a task level. So there are times where you got to drop back on the line, help get the line, but you got to move up quick because if you're only working with your hands, you're not working with your mind. There's a reason that you're a supervisor. So yeah. you got to take that very, very seriously. Take on, take an extrication, you know, you shouldn't be the one on the tools, right? You're directing the operation, you know, and, and if you do have to operate on a tool, yeah, maybe you make a cut with an O cutter, but you don't want to take the sawzall and cut in every post around. You're totally out of the supervisoring job. And now you want to be the firefighter. One of the things that we see as a trap for leadership is we often want to do the cool things we did in our previous um, position instead right. of new responsibilities we have, you know, you want to make sure that your firefighters are performing that task. That's like if somebody's hanging out of a window in a job and you're the officer, you're not the one that's supposed to go up there first to go get them. That's your firefighter. You know, yeah, you might've want to be in that position when you're a firefighter, but now you're the boss. You're there to help out, be part of the team and supervise. The, the firefighter should go up first. You should go up next to the system to get that person down if they're especially if they're unconscious coming out so you got to kind of weigh all those things yeah and i had a couple notes on that one specifically because i know that's something that i've i don't want to say struggled but it's something that i felt like was my biggest undertaking of you know i'm not one of the guys anymore right you got to create that distance that separation that's that's its own thing that's not this this is specific to um, actually acting or actually working. So I know that that's very difficult um, on the fire ground because, again, you only get to sharpen that edge 
on a call and then you have all the other human factors that you can't reproduce unless you're on the call to be able to put yourself in the situation to learn from that situation. You know what I mean? So I think it's definitely um, something you need to find the right equilibrium between overseeing and guiding. Um, I think you, you need to, you need to build the correct, I said that wrong. I'm sorry. The correct equilibrium uh, while guiding and actively contributing to the completion of the tasks, because you can't, I don't want to say you can't, but like, you can't just go, Hey, I'm, I'm the officer. You're on a pinch point and the fire is right there. You're four feet, you're four feet short. Um, and the stream's not going to make this 90 degree turn. That's physically impossible, you know, for water to do that. No, you're going to drop back. You're going to move the hand line. You're going to push it forward. And I think that's why there's a big, in my experience, why there's a big difference between being ahead of the hand line and being behind the hand line. And that's a, that's an equilibrium. That's a balance as well. You know, Hey, it's, we're in the hallway, run down real quick or crawl down or whatever, four doors down on the left, I shut the door. So now you're going to crawl down and you're going to, you're going to hit those doors with your hand because you're going to have zero visibility. This is the fourth one grab the door, crack it, check it. All right, this is it. Hey, you ready? All right, cool. Push the door, get out of the way or push the door open. Look down, look for victim, get out of the way, bring the line in. Because if you're in that doorway, you're in the way of him making the push. And now you need to be able to step back and then see the big picture, that 3000 foot view, because you're, you're focused on ahead of the hand line or you're behind the hand line, trying to push the hand line. Now you're not looking up, seeing, um, fire licking through the uh through the smoke you know roll over flash over all those things that you need to look for you can't see that because you're hand of the, your head of the hand line or you're in the wrong place with your hands multitasking so that There's, balance of i i completely agree with the balance on being ahead of the hand line for for an engine officer the one time that i really like being right in front of the nozzle is if you're going up the stairs, you got fire on the second floor, but you're not sure what room the fire's in, and the whole place is orange. So you're coming oh, up yeah. the stairs, the whole place is orange. What I want that firefighter to do is I want to be right next to him, but right in front of him or her, open up the nozzle, whip it around real quick, shut it down, just darken it down, and I want to look where the first place I see the glow so I know Come where see the seat of fire is because I don't want to stretch into the wrong room. And sure. then – get back behind the person. So there are a couple times or in a two and a half wood when you just got, you're in the attic, you got everything all lit up and they're saying, oh, I can't find the doorway. Well, just knock it down real quick. And first place you see fire, that's where the doorway is to get through the rest of that top of floor, that two and a half wood. So yeah, sure. I agree with you. There's a balance. Sometimes you want to be in front. Sometimes you want to be behind, but you don't want to be doing the task so much that you're missing what's going on because you are a supervisor. Yeah. And so that's going to lead me into the next part. What I wanted to, what I wanted to, or what I was going to get at was, um, you know, when, when you have a rookie with you, you want to be able to, you're physically, you're physically right there with them. Hey, hey, shut the nozzle down. You can grab the nozzle if you need to open the nozzle up, all that stuff. And, um, you know, you're going to, you're going to know the players too. You're going to know from all the training and all this thing who needs, more supervision than others who can be left alone. Um, and you're going to know their nuances and, and their strengths and weaknesses and how your strengths and weaknesses play with that play to, off of each other and how you may balance each other. Um, but too much supervision can lead to micromanagement, which will uh, stillify your autonomy and the ability of your 
team members to be able to um, function on their own and function on their own. I mean, I don't mean freelance. I mean, function on their own as in their position for the overall success of the nozzle team. Um, you know, on the other hand, too little supervision can re can result in a lack of direction, miscommunication, and um, reduced accountability. So, yeah, people may perform at a good level, but they want you as the officer to be encouraging. Hey, guys, keep pushing, keep pushing. Ten feet down, it's on the left, it's this, it's that. Hey, you know, it's Rick, Bob, and Bill. Rick, you good? All right, cool, keep pushing. Bill, keep pushing him. Hey, hang out at this pin. This is a pinch point. Stay here. Keep feeding, keep feeding hose line. Catch up when we get there. You know, you can, and you know this, you've been in the fire department long enough, and I'm sure there's guys and girls out there listening. You can tell when that nozzle is being opened, right? Hey, I'll call back at, I'll call back to you. Hey, when he opens this nozzle up, come on up here. They'll know what that means. So you have to create that balance. Um, you have to be able to have the communication, especially in zero visibility or when, you know, you're in the, in the heat of the moment, you have to be able to, to guide and lead. They need that. Even though they know what they're doing, they need that because when they have the guidance, they have the direction, they know what they're doing, that will create your accountability and that will create, um, you know, so you don't lose somebody or, you know, people don't start freelancing. That stops that whole freelancing thing. Um, I think a successful officer, specifically an engine officer, can strike a balance between providing clear instruction, your expectations, you delegate the tasks that you need to, and you delegate those tasks to the right people, and you're able to trust them to be able to to perform their task and then just give them guidance and uh, feedback when necessary. Um, I think this will foster um, a really good work environment. It'll empower them on future fires. Um, it's going to keep them motivated because overall you guys did a fantastic job as a crew. You put your fire out. No one else got your fire. No one saw anything but steam. That's your goal. Um, and then you're going to ultimately over time, even on the small fires, the small fires like the room off, uh, I think people jokingly call them low budget. I think any small fire, regardless of how insignificant it may feel, is a reps fire. So those fires will build confidence, restore confidence, um, especially if you know somebody somebody suffered kind of a significant failure, like where you just everything that could go wrong went wrong. Um, you know, I think that creates a great environment for, for a team, especially, you know, guys, um, firefighters on an engine, um, which will actually kind of lead us into the next part of your book. And it's going to be our last topic for the episode. Um, it's, there's a quote, it says feelings are more dangerous than ideas because they aren't susceptible to rational evolution evaluation, excuse me. And that's by Brian and Enno. And uh, it says, your tactic says, when you lose or suffer a setback, smile and push forward. Do not give anyone the power over you to take away your passion. And that includes yourself, right? In your own mind. You're one of those people. Don't allow yourself to um, lose your passion or, you know, like we talked about off air, get discouraged because of a failure. Let's talk about that a little bit. Absolutely. Because if you if you allow that to happen, you end up diminishing your own command. And especially when the attitudes are based off external politics and any fire department has politics, whether it's career or volunteer, and you can't let that affect it. When I wasn't promoted because I was white and a bunch of us were Hispanic because of a quota system, essentially, they, the chief asked if I go to the training academy to train 
the recruit class? And I said, absolutely. And my like phone wouldn't stop ringing. And they're like, well, why would you do anything for this department when they wouldn't promote you because of this color of your skin and immutable characteristics? I mean, this America, everybody can succeed regardless of race. And I was like, do you think the politicians are going to care when we're stretching down a hall with two rooms on fire or we're cutting a hole over over a fire on a weakened roof? I said, right. the, the recruits deserve the best possible training that they can get. I'm not saying I'm the best, but, you know, I came from busy companies, was a competent instructor. You know, I wanted to have that impact. I wasn't going to let some external factor change my demeanor at work. So no matter who you are at work, you're going to at some point suffer a setback. It's how you handle that adversity that's really going to define you. And to give you another example of this as the boss and having a little humility when you have a setback is my first night as a boss on the island of Misfit Toys, we had a job, fire blowing out, you know, three windows of two and a half uh, of a three-story brace frame construction. And job went perfect. You know, the, the engine... The engine uh, driver slowed down as soon as they hit the fire block. I didn't have to tell them. Um, pulled past the fire building to leave room for the truck. And I actually had to say, Ron, just give an extra 10 feet because there's a tree there for the truck. Forced the door, you know, had the engine, had the pipe person bleed out the line, before, you know, check the layout. Everything kind of went great on this. And we got a radio call from the battalion chief that fire was enveloping the front of the building. Essentially, there was... Um, gasoline siding, those asphalt shingles on the front of the building. So it was just starting to take off. And when I got to the window in zero visibility in high heat, there was a bookshelf. And what I did was I ran my hand across the bed, the whole bed, and there was nobody on the bed. And I told the pipe person, Chris Zakowski, who's a larger than life firefighter. I mean, he could fight Bigfoot and come out on top. This guy's huge. And yeah. I said, take, the, take this bookcase, and just put it on the, throw it on the bed. And in like one motion, he took this huge bookcase and zero visibility, put it on and just kind of threw it on the bed. He got out the window, raked the eaves, came down, put out the fire. At the command post after, the battalion chief says, hey, did anybody find a dog? And my heart just sunk because the truck company confirmed all their searches. And I'm like, we searched the fire room. And I thought to myself, if there was any place that I could have missed the dog, might have been you know, on that bed or on the side of the bed. But I'm like, I ran my head on a hand across that whole bed. So went back up. It turns out there was like a six to 12 inch gap between the bed and the wall. And, but when we put the bookcase on it and it was my responsibility, I was the one who gave the order. The bookcase kind of collapsed on itself, you know, a cheap fiber, you know, board yeah. bookcase yeah. and it covered the dog. Now I could have made excuses and said, you know, there's no way a dog could have, survived in that room because fire was blowing out every window in the room or I could own it. And I'm like, this is my first night on this shift where I really wanted to make an impression. So at the tailboard critique, I figured out I'm going to take it head on. And I just went first and I said, Hey, this is what I would have did on hindsight. This is, you know, it was my responsibility. I failed in this. And then I wrote an article about it for fire engineering. And what I found is that, what I was worried about was, you know, finding a stuffed dog under on my seat at the kitchen table in my bunk, you know. Um, and what I found is it actually built credibility on my shift and it encouraged everybody to share to make a great company even better. So if you're the boss and you do suffer some adversity, acknowledge it, share it and learn from it. And 
anytime I've done a critique after that on any emergency rescue, whatever it may be, um, I would always start off, well, I could have did this better, or in hindsight, with this new information, I would have did this better, or, hey, this is what I messed up. And what I found is instead of just having a, a bullshit critique where everybody says everything went great, people are more up to say, you know, I had a problem with this, I had a problem with that. And uh, it gets people to open up. But you're going to suffer setbacks. You're going to suffer defeats. You know, you're going to write that person up and they're not going to do anything about it. Don't ever give anybody an excuse for you not to do your job. Yeah. What you can control. And generally in life, whether it's about an interview, whether it's a fire, whether it's anything, we can generally only control 80 percent. 20 percent is going to be completely out of our hands. And don't let that 20 percent define you. Let your example, let how you lead define you. And, you know, the other thing, too, that that 20 percent, everybody's been through it. They may not excuse me. They may not be the officer. There may, you know, they, they could be the firefighter and it may not be whatever the situation is on the fire ground, but they know what it's like where, well, shit, dude, I, there's nothing else I could have done. Like, I, I mean, I don't know what to do. Like, I, I tried it. It didn't work out. It failed and I can't change it. Everybody's been in that situation in their life, especially people with life experience, because that's where you start seeing, um, I think, people openly admitting and, you know, that humility side that you talked about, you start seeing that later in life, right? You start seeing that with life experience. And I think as time goes on, um, the experience will come in. And I think that will create that environment. I personally think that will create that environment of um, where people will openly admit when they had that mistake and where you as the leader or as the officer, excuse me, you as the company officer, when you start out that way, hey, this house fire was this. Hey, look, I think I screwed up on the layout. Uh, I, got, I, got, I got a little frazzle. I got my cage rattled a little bit. It ended up working out, but I, I need to do better on that. And then you'll have little Ricky over here be like, yeah, I kind of did this. Or, hey, I noticed this and blah, 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 blah. He would have never said anything. But now that you're saying something, he's going to say it. And this guy over here watches both of you talk and he may chuckle a little bit and he'll add his, his opinion. He'll add in an experience. He'll add in this, that, or the other. And when you start doing those things consistently over time, you're going to create a tangible environment that people will feel okay admitting their shortcomings. And that's going to move away from a tailboard. That's going to move away from um, calls. You're going to see people, I think, in the firehouse in general will be more more um, open to talking about those things. And over time, um, that creates that environment and that rapport where you start building uh, that trust. You know, trust takes time. Don't rush it. And and that I've said before, that leadership capital of paying into that bank, um, that's where you gain those little uh, moments of respect to where um people will be more willing to admit those shortcomings and they'll be willing to understand and accept and move forward and they'll say something to the i mean at least in my um, my experience is you know all right well he did mess up and well, i've messed up too and he normally doesn't mess up but he messed up this time i know i can trust him next time he's he's going to knock it out of the park and we're going to train on it we're and you know it look he's be, he's being humble you know, I respect that. I, you know, if he if he can be okay with admitting it, I'm going to be okay with admitting it too. And I'm going to, you know, I'm going to respect this officer more, or I'm going to respect my shift partner more, because they're not afraid to say that they they messed up. And over time, 
you know, that's going to create that um, interpersonal relationship, right? So, you know, personal power versus positional power. You're going to create that personal power with your crew. And you know what personal versus positional is, right? Personal power versus positional power. Uh, heard that before. So long story short um, <clears throat> is basically Frank's the lieutenant and Frank um, says, hey, Mike, guys, let's uh, let's get this floor mopped. It's nine o'clock Saturday. Let's get the floors clean, get them mopped. And uh, he helps out. And, you know, Frank kind of does his own thing. Um, or, you know, I'm going to listen to you. You, you gave me a direct order. Or if it's, we've been working together for a while, you have your nuances, you, have, you, like, you like things done a certain way. I respect you because you're a good officer. We have a good relationship. I've learned a lot from you. You've learned some from me. We have this mutual respect from being working together over time, consistent, um, consistently stepping up, doing your job when you need to. You're doing the officer thing when you need to. And I, I know that you're a great off and I want to do my job the best I can because it's for you. So now – Hey, it's nine o'clock on a Saturday. I know the lieutenant wants mops. I, I know he wants floors done on Saturdays early. So we have the other time to do those things. I'm going to go do them right now. I'm going to do it because I want to do it because that's how you want to do it. And then that can move into the fire ground where you could say to me, Mike, pull a hand line and we're going upstairs. And it looks, it's a little rough. It looks a little hairy. It doesn't look good for me. And I'm kind of like, you know, I could say something to the effect of, you know, not that I would do this, but hey, I don't think this is very safe. It looks like it could do this. You know, it could flash over. It looks like it's uh, untenable or it looks like the floor, whatever. It doesn't look safe. And that's that's that catch all to get out of it. Or it's, Mike, we need to have the line up here. Let's go. Well, I know I can trust you. I respect you. I trust you. You're telling me to do it. And we have the rapport and the mutual respect. I'm, if you say we're good to go, I'm going to follow you. We're good to go because you, not anyone else, not what I see, you said it's good to go, and I know that from over time of building trust. So, yeah, that's kind of what I was getting at with that. No, absolutely. And, and sometimes with your example of being in a hairy, hairy situation, I actually talk about it in the book. I had an individual that a lot of times people would just ignore him, and I decided as a boss I'm not going to ignore problem children, and I'm going to train them and kind of show them the light and – I had a job and the job, it wasn't even that hot, but we're stretching in on the second floor, a mixed occupancy uh, apartment over a commercial structure. And I could see, you know, a little bit, and I could see the person's eyes were huge and they're like, it's hot. And I go, yeah, the building's on fire. And I could see Don't they were starting back up and I'm telling you, it wasn't hot. I literally took my hand underneath their, their shoulder strap and just started dragging them down the hall with me yeah. to the fire. I'm like, you know, so sometimes you got to lead from the front. Yeah. And, you know, I kind of experienced that a little bit. I remember, um, I mean, I'll never get, forget the first fire ever went on when I was a volunteer and it was a split fire house and fire was just blowing out of this house. And I mean, I don't know what, to, I mean, I went through fire school. I mean, whatever, but this isn't fire. <laughs> this isn't fire school. And I remember the guy grabbing me and he's like, come on. And he grabbed my shoulder strap. And he's just pulling me. He's like, hey. And he reached over and he, I had my hand on the, I had my hand on the knot, like I was holding the nozzle, like I remember being taught to. And he reached over, he put his hand over top, grabbed the bail. He goes, we're going to open the line up. And he opens it. He's like, and he's, we're going to shut it down. Come on, move forward. Open the line up. I'm right here. I got you. Whip it around your head. You're going to, you're fine. Let's go. Let's go. Put the fire out. Come on. Keep moving. Don't shut the line down. Push, 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 push. And 
it went out. And I remember being pushed into it. It wasn't, it wasn't afraid like I can't do this, but I think it was a fear of the unknown. And then once I was done though, I was like, I can do this. This is freaking awesome. And I was hooked ever since that. And, you know, 20 some years later and I'm still here. But the point that I'm making is if that would have been a different officer that didn't push it, you know, the guy that was leading me is a freaking awesome firefighter. He's a, he's a great human being in general. This is again, that personal, um, personal power, the rapport, the respect, the trust. Um, if it was somebody else, I mean, who knows where it would have turned out? What if they were saying, oh, we got to get out of here. We got to bail. And they were afraid too. And I'm like, what the hell? I don't know what I'm doing. I'm new. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? And then I get absolutely terrified. We get rolled over or, you know, we get burned. I don't know. It could have, cre- it could have dramatically changed um, everything. So, yeah, I mean, that's my example for it. No, abs- absolutely. Um, Mike, it's, it's been an honor to be on your show. Yeah. I mean, this is a great conversation, and today sure. we focused on the company officer, and I'm sure. really hoping that after you go through the book, you'll have me come back on to talk about how the book has an impact on the battalion chief and other functions within with on the job, and uh, keep up the great work on LinkedIn, and uh, like I said, I'm always following what you're putting out there because- I appreciate great. that. It's, it's great stuff, and for your listeners, you know, check out the book, Command Presence, Increase Your Influence. Uh, you can pick it up at Barnes and Noble, Amazon, and FireEngineering.com. All right, thank you for coming on the show, Rick, uh, Frank, Richie, Frank Richie. Jeez, the curse of having two last names—it's okay. <laughs> Tongue-tied. I do apologize that, for that. Thank you, Frank, for coming on the show. Um, we're going to add the links for the book below. Um, what's a uh, what's a good place for everybody to uh, reach out to you if they want to get a hold of you? Um, uh, the best media. place to get a hold of me is on Twitter. So it's Frank Ritchie uh, DC is the is the handle on Twitter. And uh, love to hear from you. Direct message me. Give me a call anytime. Excellent. So we're gonna add that link. Add those links uh, to the episode description. Uh, Frank, don't go anywhere real quick while I shut this out or I close this out. Um, everybody, thank you for listening. Uh, this is Tip the Spear Leadership Podcast. Before you go, please leave us a review. Five stars is our favorite, and it helps us grow the show. So everybody, have a great day. Thank you all. Um, I know it's been a little bit since I've made a podcast. I think I'm about a week or two out. Um, summertime, kids out of school, and camp's only two weeks, so I got to cram absolutely everything in. So thank you all for your time, and uh, Tip of the Spear Leadership. Be present, be yourself, be unstoppable. Have a great day, guys. Thank you.